0: Welcome to Cubecast, where we talk about all things finance and investing. All opinions expressed are solely the opinion of the individuals and do not reflect the opinions of the firms they work for. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Securities mentioned on the podcast may be owned by Cube or the guests on the show. With that, Let's get this episode underway with the founder of Cube, Bez Bairami and Principal and Director of Capital Markets at InnoVest, Stephen Fraley. Hey, 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 what is going on, Cube fam? I am here with Stephen Fraley again. Get used to this face because we are going to keep doing more and more podcasts together. This is going to be a very interesting episode for those who are starting out investing or have been struggling with investing or find themselves in and out of it and just really can't seem to stick around and stick to their game plan or strategy. We're going to have a lot of questions we go through. We're going to be talking about our own personal stories and we're going to kick this off with that exactly. Steven, I want you to walk me through how your investing journey began, where it started, what your initial thoughts were, just break it all down for us and then I'll go ahead and add my two cents.
1: Excellent, yeah, I think it's a great way to kick it off. I think you know, storytelling is a, a great benefit in this industry. I mean, it, it's applicable to everything, but I mean, coming through the, the personal lens, of course, plays a, a little bit of a different role as a bigger impact. Um, my investment journey and interest actually started through my mother, um, who was a CFA. So she was an investment person. Those are like our conversations like growing up. I like got very interested in it at a younger age. Um, and then at one point, she basically incentivized me to say, hey, I will open an account for you, an e-trade account, you know back to the e-trade days. Um, and every dollar that you save above and beyond what you need for you know your expenses, I'll match you dollar for dollar. And put it into the account so i did you know i was 16 so i she had to actually open it under is it you know basically a, an account for a minor um uh, but i just had all the login information so that's how it got me interested is, is her career path and then ultimately her matching me so i found a, a financial incentive to be interested and in, in do research and do the work and so i started you know playing around buying some stocks you know not a whole lot not many shares Um, But it was fun and I was buying stuff that I used or that I knew, right? I mean, that's kind of how you start out if you are, you know, investing in individual stocks. It's generally something that you think either, hey, wow, I use this all the time. I know it, you know, so it's familiar or it's, hey, this is a really cool area that's of interest to me. And I think there's a big opportunity or potential here. So let me go down that path and figure out, um, you know, some interesting names or some, some interesting stocks that might have some staying power.
0: How did, um, how did it go for you? Like in the beginning, because I had the same match, uh, I was in college. I started taking a liking to the finance world. I was like, you know what, dad, I'm done with paper trading accounts. I want to step into the real thing, which paper trading accounts are a great starting tool. I got to say that Yeah. yeah. for my investing journeys, and you're afraid to put your money in, start with a paper trading account, play with fake money until you're ready. Um, but I got tired of doing that. I said, dad, I want to step up to the big leagues. So he matched me. It wasn't a whole lot of money. I thought I was a hot shot. I blew that money so fast it was gone. It was gone. I think it was three or $4,000. See ya. Um, never saw that again, but there was a lot of lessons that came along with it. But how, how did you fare with that first little batch of money?
1: So I, yeah, I think I had a slightly different experience just because I, quite frankly, just got really lucky on one of the stocks. Um, so I bought like some, yeah, I'll bring it up. But I brought, bought some, you know, blue chip stocks at the time, like Starbucks, which is still, you know, buying that. I'm trying to just do some mental math. Oh, hold here.
0: on. Wait, wait, wait. Before we even get there, before we even get there, uh, what year are we talking here?
1: Yeah, yeah. This had, so this <laughs> was like when I was, so 21 years ago. So 20 <laughs> 2002. Okay. Um. You know, so I bought some Starbucks, but it had some, you know, it was fine. I wasn't taking risky bets, but the one stock that I bought that I took an, an outsized position in was NVIDIA. Stop. Um. 2002, 2003 timeframe. What had you known about it? So what I knew is I liked video games, wow. right? And so at the time, NVIDIA produced, of course, the chips for basically every gaming system out there and that's what i knew so i said oh yeah i like video games gaming's big i didn't think about of course the vast potential of what just that business would do you know 20 years um, from then and you know obviously i didn't hold the same you know i i made some mistakes along the way which we'll talk about but that's what got me interested in right i liked video games Um, i knew the company i started digging into it and it's like oh well they make all the chips for video games this industry is only going to grow so it should be a pretty good investment
0: Wow, man. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone had any idea it would become what it is today. I mean, they just have expanded so well, such great leadership, which is one of the things we're going to talk about. I'm sure it's going to come up when we talk about things to look for when investing. But um, it's it's kind of crazy how how similar our stories were. I, where I differ a little bit, uh, I didn't have E-Trade. I had Scottrade, yeah, uh, uh-huh. which was, remember paying $10, $15, whatever it was per trade to get in and out? I mean, so it really closed off the door for a lot of people who can invest today. It's actually so cool how you can invest with such a little amount today and not have to worry about making 20% on your investment to cover the brokerage fees. You know, Uh, we had to worry about that. We also didn't have fractional shares back then. You couldn't buy half a share of something. So it also forced you to play, you know, cheaper stocks, which is inherently generally, you can say, is more risky. So. Um, I definitely made my, my mistakes, which is what we're going to talk about here in, in this second question. Like, What are general mistakes that you've seen made or that you think younger investors make? I'll use that as a leeway that for some reason, young investors I've noticed, especially with how much I talk to them, they have this obsession with finding stocks under $10. I don't understand for the life of me why they feel this way. Just because the price is cheap doesn't mean the stock is val- more valuable or more cheap. That it prov- you know provides more upside. You know it's kind of crazy to me how people get started and they don't know the difference between the price per share and market cap difference. No. You know how many people say to me, "Well, I'm buying in. I'm buying AMD because Nvidia's already four hundred and AMD's still one hundred. I want to shake them. I, you can." make the argument, okay, AMD might be better at certain parts, you know, okay, fine. But that is not the reason you should be using because it's just completely off. You know, so um, that is one thing we can play ping pong with this uh, on my list. What are some things you noticed well, on yours?
1: I mean, it's it's actually funny because one of, one of the better well-known mutual funds, and actually it's had pretty good success overall, is, I don't know if you've heard of it, the Fidelity Low Price Stock Fund. I had a grad school professor in, like, a investment management course that, like, just said, just go buy, you know, Fidelity Low Price Stock Fund. It's the best managed, you know, strategy, literally within the confines of the portfolio construction and, like, within, you know, the prospectuses. And I don't know, it's probably changed over time, but it, it, it was... I think at the time, you know, the fund would only invest 80% of, you know, the entire net asset value of the fund and stocks priced under $20 a share, you know, or something like that. I think they've moved it up since then just because it, you know, expands the universe. Um, but it's just like, I don't understand how that makes sense and how that actually works. But, um, sure. I guess if that works for you, I, you know, and it was pretty successful, I guess. So, yeah, that's that's definitely strange. Yeah. Um, I'd say, yeah, I mean, biggest mistakes, kind of challenges generally, you know, I think expectations, right? Just being realistic, level setting expectations. I think people hear about all the great stories. They hear about all the people making a lot of money and they think, oh, this should be easy. I should be able to earn, you know, this amount in the market, right? That's just not, not probably a reality um, and so again, just coming in, I think as a new investor with realistic expectations, being willing to actually learn, put in the work um, you know being patient, certainly helpful uh, along the way. you know I think probably one of the biggest mistakes you know people make is probably just trying to do too much. I think you know yeah. I've certainly been subject to that yeah I mean up up I remember literally graduating undergrad um, 2008 time frame and i was like i i mentioned i had like a lot of success with nvidia like a lot i sold it in 2008 because i was 22 years old and a senior in college and it made a lot of money and i was like all right yeah i'm selling it and then of course i realized oh you know i gotta pay taxes on this oh shit (laughs) didn't think about that right and it's like um but then i was like oh i've got all these proceeds i'm gonna start trading you know Doing a little bit more trading you know i thought i was pretty good or something which was just pure luck because i just didn't look at the at the account for six years which that's the best thing you can possibly do right yeah. find some stuff you like and don't look at it um and then i started trading a lot literally in the melt- meltdown of you know the global financial crisis right so i was just getting absolutely just pummeled on Jeez. on everything i was doing and like you know so just that was just such a wreck you know it was like such a, a realization of up oh, yep not nearly um, as intelligent as I you thought. You got off your high and, horse uh, real that, quick. That was that was all purely luck, basically.
0: Oh my goodness. You know, uh, what, what shocks me is when uh, new investors get started and they have this obsession also with these trading products, these levered trading products. And at the time, I remember getting a lot of DMs about it. I'm not sure what it is now, but TVIX used to be huge, right? TVIX was like the biggest thing to play volatility. And they don't know these concepts like contango, right? And decay. They don't understand what those are when the, when the futures roll over. And so they're looking at something that was on a five-year chart at a thousand. Now it's 11. And I would get DMs all the time. Like, dude, am I going long TVX, you know, holding it for like a year, man. If it goes back to like 150, I'm going to like 15X my yeah, money. Yeah, it's got at it, least 10X it, right it, from it, here. I mean, because then it'll only be down 90% from all time highs. And they don't realize that the product is only meant to be day traded because it's susceptible to that decay. Uh, it, it's in something that naturally just goes down. It's only meant for, you know, short term trades. Yeah. They didn't know that there was another um, product like that on 3X Oil. They're all over the place. They're always yeah, popping yeah. up. Direxion is usually behind those names. And yeah. Um, So that's another thing I've noticed. Just more generally, people want to get into the market. They don't know how to read a balance sheet. I've said that time and time again. That's a lot of the reason I started Cube was to help people understand how to read financial statements. So at least if you're going to look for stocks on your own and avoid the ETF, the SP500 route, at least know what the heck you're reading, what you're investing in, man. And, And you did it perfectly with regard to NVIDIA where you didn't look at it, but you also invested in what you knew. I did not. When I started out, I was looking at the bottom tickers on CNBC, what was active, what was moving. I got rinsed real quick, had no idea what I owned. And, um, and that, that hurt me big time. So, you know, Peter Lynch is pretty much what you took a page out of his book, invest in what you're familiar with, invest in what you see firsthand. That's a lot of time is a winning strategy, man. So, uh, if you're going to go beyond that though, and you're going to get a little more into the nitty gritty. You have to understand balance sheets. You have to understand some kind of macro environment uh, themes, what's going on beyond your stocks, because they still do affect what your stock's doing on a micro basis. You know, your stock could be crushing it, but, you know, many stocks have been crushing it the last two, three years. They've seen no price appreciation because of the macro environment with interest rates. And you're like all confused and then you get flustered and then you lose faith. And I've seen it where you just get out of the market completely. And I I hate to see that. So, and we're going to get into uh, that part with advice soon, but before we move on to this next topic and speak more about our personal stories, any last things you touch on as far as general mistakes you're seeing yeah. the youth make? Yeah. I mean, I think I'd like
1: divide it into two camps, right? I mean, like first and foremost, like honestly, for the overwhelming majority of people that are just trying to invest, right? They're, they're doing so through the retirement you know, plan, right? Through their 401k plan or their, through their equivalent retirement plan savings vehicle. Like that's where most of your money is going to be early on. Like just get good diversification and start early and often put away as much as you can. Right. I mean, that's yeah. the best advice you can get. I mean, the power of compounding is incredible. And it doesn't look like a lot over the course of, you know, a quarter, a year, two years, five years. But over the course of a long period of time, it's unbelievable what, you know, the the, the compounding effect can have on, Absolutely. on a portfolio. And take right? advantage so, of your
0: employer's matching, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's free money. Just take advantage of it's it. It's insane. You know, yeah. stick around long enough where it vests. Unfortunately, I left JP Morgan a hair too soon, so I lost all that, yeah, that matching. Mean, but what are you going to do? There's other other
1: factors that are going to make you know make you make career decisions, etc. But I mean, the 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 easiest thing to do is yeah. I mean, I've sit sit down with friends. I was like, you got to at least put in whatever you need to get the full employer match, right? Because that is free money. Do that if you can plug away more. You know, great. Again, get broad diversification. You know take age appropriate risk like if you're starting out and you're 22 23 like you know you need to be in equities right it's just that's all there is to it you have yeah. way too much time um on your hand and at the end of the day i mean time horizon should drive every single major investment decision if you have a short time horizon you shouldn't take as much risk if you have a long time horizon you should be taking generally more risk or as much risk as you know palatable so yeah those are you know generally i'd say just broad-based tips i mean you know, if you are putting money away outside of that and you're looking at the, you know, at individual stocks, then that's kind of a different story, right? Yeah. Um, it is, it's more, you know, be really convicted in a certain industry or sector or names if you're gonna do something outside of just getting exposure to the market.
0: What I've noticed that people use Cube a lot for is, so they have their 401k, they park it in a sometimes target date fund, which I was always against for the longest time. But it appears the fees have come down dramatically over the last oh, yeah. six years that i've been out of corporate so I'm, I'm more in favor of them but they have it regardless diversified in their 401k yeah. and then they find themselves with additional funds that they want to work with and that's kind of where cube comes in where they want to take on additional risk you know my average clients probably around 25 years old 26 getting yeah. you know that next step in their career where now they're above uh, a certain pay grade that allows them to have that kind of flexibility um so yeah. And then I would say just try your best as even psychologically, right? If you're putting more into your 401k, some people can't resist. If it's in their bank account, they're going to spend it. So at least throw it in there. So you don't have the opportunity to spend that money, right? Uh, yeah. And I mean, I, it's, it's crazy. Actually, you got to play those games sometimes with your mind. It's funny because I
1: came across, you know, Bez Cube, I mean, a number of years ago. And wow, hearing the average age, 25 or 26, means I really skew that upwards. Mm. Um,
0: We'd be like 19 so, without you. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, you got to have, you know, the, the old wise man, I suppose, um, which is funny because, you know, I still have conversations with people that are like, wait, you're not really, have, you don't have enough experience. You're not old enough to, you know, be having this kind of responsibility. I'm like, come on, you know, it's just funny how.
0: Yeah, it is funny, funny how these
1: things work, but it's all it's all relative.
0: So with your century long of experience, yeah, talk to, <laughs> talk to us about some personal mistakes you've made that let's be real here still bother to this day i got to feel myself what are what are some mistakes you beat yourself over the head up on like you're like damn man i I was better than that i was smarter than that i should have known and you know you look at them differently too as you get older in the market too you you get more years under your belt where you're like okay this is not a mistake i can beat myself up for in years one and two but now i'm in the market over 10 years damn i should have been on top of this a little bit better
1: yeah i mean i think i mean the the human behavioral aspect of investing and like the psychology of investing is just literally it's so prevalent and so relevant to like actually making these mistakes because everybody does it. Um which is why generally and I've talked about this you know with you with other folks um within Cube as I'm you know chatting with people it's like I love to like mess around but like at the end of the day I still keep most of my investments in diversified mutual funds, because I just know if I do that and I don't look at it, I just can't really screw it up. Um, (laughs) And that's something I've learned over time because like you do make mistakes. Like, 08 was a perfect example I mentioned coming in, like trying to do too much, getting my first real job, had some proceeds from the sale of NVIDIA, got just absolutely rinsed. um, And, you know, a six month period, I'd say honestly, similar to like 2021. It was um, you took the right amount. my mouth? Would you say it's comparable?
0: Would you say the bear market was comparable to 08? like how would you compare the two? Like when you look at twenty twenty one, having lived through 08, right twenty like back half of twenty twenty one, kind of when it started through yeah, so, and, I, and I was
1: actually just referencing twenty twenty one because like a lot of the stuff that you know I was invested in, I know some of the stuff you were really peaked like almost like early half of 2021, yeah. right? So it almost went into a bear market before some of the more kind of secular, yes. higher beta growth stuff actually went into recession before, call it, you know, the big mega cap tech names, right? Which That's happened true. at the end of uh, 2021 into 2020, 2022. But it was just like riding that whole run up and just letting the tax dog, tax tail wag the dog. Like yeah. literally, because a lot of this stuff is not in my deferred, accounts. It's in my taxable account. And I was like, oh, wow, like coming out of COVID, you know, everyone did really well. If you stayed invested and you got into some names, I mean, you had unbelievable opportunities where you were making on just owning common shares of a stock, making 1x, 2x, 3x, 5x on an actual underlying just common shares, right? Which is crazy in a short period of time. And letting, again, the tax tail wag the dog and not just taking more gains, like not just taking more chips off the table, and just setting that aside and paying the tax man. Like it was like, nope. I, and I and just writing stuff back down. Absolutely. I mean, that's it again. I'd say a very common mistake is thinking too much about taxes, thinking too much about that. You know, if you've seen significant gains, take some chips off the table. Um, you know, I think, I don't know if it was, you know, Warren Buffett or the late great Charlie Munger, but it's like, you know, no one's ever gone broke by uh, by taking some gains.
0: You're right. You're yeah. right. And, and that is the i believe one of the top five hardest tasks in the game i'm always asked what's harder to time a buy or time a sell i always find it hard to hit the sell button always i think it's so funny what is my greatest asset my greatest strength i would say is also my greatest weakness i think so long term that when we look back at a 2021 2022 and i'm up on some stocks 7x and I didn't take gains because yeah. I made up my mind that I'm owning this stock for another five more years. I'm like, dude, yeah. what the hell are you thinking, man? Oh, it's just like you we know? look back
1: at these things where we're just like banging your head against the wall. Like how, you know, how dumb can you be? Like, like? I
0: took gains, but damn it, I should have took a hell of a lot more than I did. You know, um, and I look, I sold some covered calls against things, which is great, but that's like plugging a hole on a sinking ship at that point, you know? It's, it's really, it's nothing. It's, you can't stop the water from coming in at that point, but yeah. um, it, it's tape's really great,
1: but you know, it can only seal so many cracks, you know, that's
0: it, man. I, I didn't have flex seal, unfortunately. So, <laughs> so that's what I'm always asking myself. That hard question where you think long-term, you make up your mind, you want to own it long-term, but you have to ask yourself, okay, this is run quite a bit. And then you're always left asking yourself about that one point that everyone makes. Don't sell winners don't sell winners and i always ask myself well hold on a second is that statement actually true because when you because we have been in like this perpetual bull market where almost every dip gets scooped for i don't know how many years now and yeah don't take don't take uh like don't sell winners has been a really correct statement but then i asked myself when you run into a 2021 2022 event Shit, I should have sold a lot of my winners.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the perfect examples were like, if we're just talking like individual stocks, like C Limited, which some through some of you know the investment managers that I know, like I think you know I was able to get in pretty early.
0: That was had some a really x Just to then, take it back you know, down,
1: completely disappeared. Um, Upstarts, a name that I came across pretty early. <laughs> perfect environment, zero interest rates. Everyone just getting loans. Perfect model for them. Of course, you know the second you know the Fed hints at raising rates, should have been a pretty clear sign to like, yep, this can't go any higher. Because- How about that
0: CMB segment where the guy uh, is on? And He's like, so, uh, uh, so what best. do they do? So what do they do? And he's like, ah, uh, uh, I'm, I'm missing you. I, I can't hear you here. Uh, uh, we lost them. We lost them.
1: It's, it's still the single greatest clip, and I think what Mark Minervini, Mark, I can't remember. His name, but he's I don't like, remember. Actually, like, he's like a really well known trader that I think has actually been really successful. So like. He was just on there like trading momentum probably, right? Yeah, so, yeah he didn't even know he what didn't he was know, doing. <laughs> He didn't know upstart from freaking downstart. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, um, and but he just, yeah, that was unreal. That's still the greatest meme.
0: It really is.
1: Great uh, FinTwit, you know, financial Twitter Memes that came out of the last two years no, is that
0: is historic.
1: Is that CNBC clip and just pretending like he's cutting out? I mean, that's legendary stuff, honestly. That
0: is legendary. He's like, ah, oh, yeah, not getting you, not getting, not yet. getting and you. And they're like, ah, right, we lost some guys, we lost them. It's <laughs> like, so what uh, do they do? Oh man, that's hilarious. Oh, yeah. Almost as good as Ackman's thirty-minute. We're all going to hell in a handbasket. We're all gonna die, shedding tears. Thirty minutes uninterrupted, uninterrupted as is, he's shorting uh, the market, then flips long. Midway through the conversation,
1: I mean the depths of COVID. That you know, I don't know what the date of was that, but it had to be you know, back end of March 2020, right? Like end of March, market was down. You know, the S and P was down what 34 percent in like 30 days. I mean, the fastest drawdown ever. And he's on here just you know talking about the end of the world. Meanwhile, no commercials. Backing up the truck.
0: Backing up, reaping in on his shorts. And then like mid-call, no commercials. Dude is like his voice is trembling, talking about his dying father. He has to protect. Like he was going on about the whole thing. Meanwhile, he is making billions and then flips the other way by the end of the call. I think give or take a week or so from that was the bomb in the market.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Crushed it.
0: Crushed it. Hey, listen, man. It power to you. You you had the opportunity, you took it. Um but uh, yeah, I would say those are like our top mistakes. Uh, would you say, this is actually a random question, not even on my sheet. Um, would you say you've ever fought the Fed in your history of investing? Um, this one was a tough one. And I'm gonna give you a little time to think about yeah. it as I explain it a little more. Because the Fed was telling us rates are gonna rise, but yeah. in all their dot plots, they never predicted it would be this hawkish. So if you listen to the Fed, you only thought, you know two hikes coming maybe three you know people forget that in like 2021 they said no hikes in 2022 until like yeah. october november of, of 2021 that's okay okay maybe two hikes next year i mean
1: i i think the direct quote was we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates and then yeah. like i mean that just flipped within a matter of you know months yeah um, like two crazy but i mean i think from like a you know from a personal standpoint I mean, there was probably, again, and it goes to the lines with like, taking gains and just, like, being prudent. Like, there was easily things that, if you look back, you should have seen, like, all right, yeah, I mean, the the market's not going to like the Fed coming out and raising rates. I think the thing that threw everybody off, we talked about it a little bit last time, is I just don't think anyone expected the Fed to, to hike to the extent that they have. I think Even everyone's like, Fed oh, yeah, they're going <laughs> to hike a couple hundred basis points, maybe 300 basis points, not, you know, 500 plus, right? So, it's like, I think that was the big... Big shocker. Um, I mean, I think we saw signals. Like the hard thing is, like when I try to you know disconnect or, or separate out personal versus work. You know, when I'm from a from a you know professional standpoint, like we're talking about like allocating capital, and you're not just making real decisions based on you know what the Fed's going to do, right? I mean, you're trying to maybe make some tweaks, maybe lean in, lean out depending on what you see, but you're not generally going to be like turning anything over aggressively. Right. And, um, you know, I think we made some good decisions there as a firm and, you know, I, I, I help out with a lot of our asset allocation decisions, but it was, you know, more, more kind of on the margin kind of directionally. Um, I think like, it's been, we are just in such an unbelievable environment. Like part of, you know, I say like, I got lucky all the time. Like I started working in 08, like during the crisis. You know, it's like every single dollar that I basically put into my retirement plan or 401k in the last 15 plus years basically has just been in like a long term, you know, secular yeah. full market. Right. I mean, so it's like that's a lot of luck. Um, when you're starting putting out, in in, putting it into a point when the market was falling, yeah. you know, for a strong period of time at the beginning of that and Absolutely. just plowing away. And like I've got stuff, I've got like initial, original, like, you know, tax slots and cost basis on stuff that was bought like back then. That's like just index stuff. And it's, you know, plus 500%, plus yeah. 600%. Unbelievable. Like,
0: um, when you started in O2, you caught the tail end of the, of the crash there as well.
1: No, I think I was like basically just out of that. Um, just past, so like probably also another reason why I got lucky with like NVIDIA, like buying All it right. probably after. Yeah, man, we got
0: to buy some lotto tickets together.
1: Seriously. Yeah. Um, but I think, like, that's the whole, like, no one saw, like, we've just been in such an unbelievable environment for risk assets, right, with rates just having consistently fallen for basically, essential I mean, almost 14, you know, years, 13 years. Well, if like, you go straight, further
0: back, look at the 30-year, um, going back to the 80s. I mean. so Oh, okay, yeah. It's I mean, a, if, yeah, yeah, we've
1: been in a 40-year, you know secular bull market for bonds. Right. I mean, like just because rates have just come down straight down for 40 years, just directionally. Um,
0: Absolutely. It's like, yeah, you could
1: easily make the argument that that was a great environment um, to invest and Like, you know, people probably could have done more, but it's always hindsight bias. Right. And, you know, biases are one of the great things about investing because we're all subject to them. And it's one of the things I find fascinating about investing is, you know, all the 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 cognitive biases that we're all susceptible to and that we all generally get hung up on at some point in time because it's just how our brains work. It's how humans operate, right? It's yeah. like, oh yeah, recency bias. I just saw this. Like that's gonna take precedent over something else. Um, that maybe you read, you know, a few months ago that was not maybe as bullish on a name you like, but you just read something the other day that's like painting a pretty rosy picture. Like that's probably gonna be more uh top of mind. Um In terms of your, you know, your thought process.
0: It is hard to pull the emotions out, you know, Um, and I also find and uh, the questions have come up here is advice for two sets of people, people starting out and people who have already started, but they've been struggling. So and and I really want to take this question, not that we haven't been taking them seriously, but really seriously, because I've noticed that since the pandemic, a lot of people have entered the market. It was like this cooler thing to do. Um, Everyone was bored at home, nothing to do. They opened up Robinhood accounts, Webull accounts. They got in the market. These people have been in the market for roughly two to three years, okay? Unless you've timed things perfectly, it's been a rough time. It's been a rough time. 2023 has been a little bit of a relief, but chances are you're still down from a lot of what you had in 2021, 2022, what yeah. would be the advice you have for, for this group, especially when I consider Cube followers? This kind of speaks a lot to them. They are now three years in the market. I can tell you firsthand, a lot of them have been getting discouraged. Yeah. What would you tell people right now that have already spent the time, have been patient now three, four years, right? It may, even call it minimum two. They've been patient, they're still down, they're not sure what the heck to do, or they just they just want to throw the towel in. What do you tell them?
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's challenging, right? Cause if you look at the last now, you know, three plus years, you've got, I already mentioned, right, thirty plus percent decline during COVID. So thank you. Well, if you just got into the market late, you know, twenty nineteen, right? At some point you're like, oh ho hum, whatever, things are fine, nothing great. And then COVID comes around and like that's your first real experience of like some um, you know, big Big. I don't even know what the right word is for that situation, right? I mean, it's like um, something that we've never really seen before, right? I mean, it, it goes was a unreal, pandemic, man. but it was know, unreal. we thought the world was going to close. So you see a period where that kind of volatility comes into play, and your natural reaction is like, uh, I didn't sign up for this. I'm out. I'm selling out, right? And then we saw the huge snapback. So if you just stayed invested, you probably made all your money back, and then some, oh, right? Yeah. But most people that probably weren't comfortable, that were new, probably sold out. That's naturally what happens, right, is, 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 you know, I wish we could all buy low, sell high, but it's usually the opposite because that's just how our human emotions work. And then they probably didn't get back in until, you know, maybe middle of 2021 or maybe beginning, you know, when they started, oh, things are feeling more comfortable now, right? Like the market seems to have stabilized. And then they get in, you know, maybe 2021, middle of 2021. And the next thing you know, they... The same thing happens in 2020. They get nailed
0: twice. Right. And so that's
1: the hard part, right? So it's staying with it. Um, And so I'd say, you know, volatility and there's great educational charts on it, right? But volatility in the equity market is very real and it's very prevalent. And you have to first and foremost understand that to earn returns that the market can give you, the equity market, you have to be able and willing to accept the risk and the volatility along the way. And if you can't, and if you just can't stomach it, you probably shouldn't invest in the stock. Especially if you're going individual stocks. Especially if you're going individual stocks. Even if you're not, I mean, the S&P 500 saw a 25% drawdown last year. That's a big drawdown for people that are saying, wow, I just put a lot of my money in there and it's down 25% at one point, right? So I mean, but over long periods of time, there is always volatility over long periods of time, Mr. Market, has provided very strong returns, nearly 10% per year since the inception of the S&P 500, right? So being able to come up with a plan, I think, right, of how you're going to invest. This truly has to be money that you're not planning on using, in my opinion. Don't invest if you're planning on using it, right? It has to be money that is long-term money that allows you to be able to have a lot long time horizon and stay invested during those periods of volatility. Ideally, you're putting more capital away and you're, and you're buying dips along the way, right? Yeah. And that's an ideal situation. So my advice would be to, you know, if it is true long-term money, stick with it, um, focus long-term, control what you can, right? A lot of things are out of our control, but what you can't control is staying disciplined, understanding, you know, the names that you're in, understanding that markets are volatile. You can't control when they're volatile, they're volatile to the upside, to the downside, um, but you can control staying invested, you know, making prudent decisions, um, averaging in along the way. And hopefully, again, everyone's doing that through their through their retirement plan, anyways. Um, because it's funny, what most of us don't touch our retirement plans, right? Even though we could, yep. Like we could, but we just keep it invested because we're like, oh, we can't touch that until we're, you know, 60 at least, right? Without taking, you know, early, early t- uh early withdrawal penalties. So I would say if you can. Try to treat your your taxable money um, or money that you're investing outside the same way, if you can have that mindset to it, I'd say.
0: 100%. I'm going to echo a lot of this here, Stephen, and I'm going to go ahead and say, you got to do a few things here. You got to let go of this concept of day trading. You have to let it go. I know it's so difficult because all these influencers today, are talking about how they're making a living. They're on a yacht somewhere. They have a Lamborghini somewhere. You're being sold the lifestyle and it's just not a reality. And, and this is how I've been running cube for the longest time. And it's why I've been growing slower because I tell you, my marketing is you're not going to get rich tomorrow. Um, and you want to invest long-term, but that's also the same reason I'm still in business today, you know, and, I really can't stress enough. Let go of the day trading and t- zoom out for a minute. Yeah. We are so young school. I joke about your age all the time. You still probably have at least like 15 to 20 years in the market. Oh, okay. More, more than that. More than that. And I'm just on my equity market though, before you yeah, eventually start hey. to move things into, into bonds. Right. I'll always be
1: in the equity markets, you
0: know, you know, a guy like you, you probably will be. Uh, but uh, then you look at someone who's like 25, think you got 40 more years in this market. Okay. Like take it easy. Some years are going to be abysmal. It's just how yeah. it goes. And it's not the end all be all. Some years are going to be amazing, but yeah, you look at it, you get in to the market in 2019. You, you know, people have sold because they were scared of the pandemic in 2020. They got some confidence. They bought back in 2021. They got hosed uh, in 2021 uh, later part of the year. Um, then they thought, okay, um, I'm going to buy the dip in 2022, but they're like, no, maybe I shouldn't because everyone's talking about a 2023 recession. And then the market goes and rips another 20%. So you got rinsed twice trying to get in. And then you held off because of the worries about a 2023 recession that never happened. And now you missed 20%. So you lost, lost, missed gain. That's been like the last three years for many people. And this could have all been avoided if you just stayed the course Stayed relaxed, bought dips when you had a little extra cushion in your pocket, and wrote it out. And now, look, I'm yeah. not the type of guy to tell you, oh, you need to just only buy index funds. Look, we're human. We see opportunities, we want to capitalize on them, no problem. But stop being so myopic, stop being so short sighted. Think about the long game here. You know, it's almost like, yes, think about your retirement account. Steven, I'm also going to add a little extra layer to that. Think about it as if you were investing privately in these companies. You've had a lot of success in the private markets. I know you're probably saying to yourself, thank goodness I don't see those things uh, trade daily. I'd probably lose my mind. But instead, you have frequent calls with management. The the shares don't trade on any exchange for you to look at it daily. And you haven't been concerned at all. Even though if they were on the stock market, you probably would have lost a few hairs. You have to look at it the same way. Totally, You got to look at it the same exact way. Totally.
1: Totally. Yeah, and I I mean that's funny because I when you said when you talked about just you know the repricing or you know the lack of repricing on private market securities securities, all I think about is is our boy uh chorn, baby, you know. <laughs> um and like we would we would always laugh about it, right? Cause like that's the great thing about private market investments is just that, you know, they don't mark to market, right? And so you just feel better about it. Like there's that's basically the big the illiquidity premium is that it just, you don't see daily fluctuations. And so you just feel more comfortable generally with those investments. And I I think it's, you know, we allocate a lot to private markets. We think it it adds good diversification. Um, But I think, uh, you know, back to to the, the main question, I mean, I think it's, But just again, trying to be patient. I mean, it's really hard, but I mean, I think the great example and and nobody's ever going to reach his level of success, but like Warren Buffett. Right. I mean, they always show all these depictions of like Mm -hmm. his net worth over time. And like, it doesn't look like a whole lot happened until like he hit, you know, 60. Yeah. Right. Like he obviously on a, you know, it's all relative. I mean, I think he was, you know, a billionaire by the age of, you know, 55, but if you saw his net worth from 60 to say 90, that's where all the gains came from. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean just like that compounding effect um it's just it's so important over time, right? I mean if you is. just do it's just like starting early. I mean that's the best piece of advice. Start early, stay invested um and it'll have a big impact over time. I mean you you've probably seen them, we've all done them, but like the big difference between just starting five years earlier or 10 years earlier, by the time you get to retirement, it's, it could, it doubles your portfolio. It actually can be
0: life-changing, literally, you know? Five and- years earlier. And at
1: the time it doesn't feel like, oh, I'll just start, and I'll start next year. I'll start in a couple of years. I mean, but it makes such a big difference Absolutely, um, when man. you, when you extrapolate that, that out over, you know, decades, right? Look,
0: I don't want to sound like you're run of the mill finance guys here, but it, it's, it's the truth, though. Now, I, where I'm going to take on a little tangent, I would argue Buffett definitely, like the, the days of making 30X on Coca-Cola, they don't really exist yeah, anymore. Sure. All right, granted, he got a hold of that. Um, but, you know, I, invest long-term. I'm not even the type of guy to say, oh, always just ride out index funds to the end of times. It's definitely what tends to win. But look, if you see yourself... You know, a lot of people invest in the industry you operate in. Like there's some software guys that I know that see what is happening in their industry. Take advantage of it. There's guys I just sat down with someone yesterday. He's in the oil and gas space. He does very well, uh, you know, because he invests in what he knows. He knows where things are going. Invest. You know, if you see, you know, like you work in fashion, you work in retail. You know what kind of money you could have made on Lululemon and Ulta? Just oh, seeing yeah. it with Let's your own it. eyes, like go ahead and, and and take advantage of those opportunities. But the point is, the best time to start investing was likely yesterday. Yeah, you know. And I don't know if people can be like, "Well, no, man, this is a big facade, Mark. I get it. I get it. I hear you. You obviously always want to time things as best you can. It's just a lot harder uh, to actually do in in real life." But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, having a and, and plan granted, and you know talking
1: yeah. about it versus actually, you know.
0: And if we want to replicate Buffett's success to like the actual percentage, it's going to be hard. We're in a generation now where you're going to have to take on way more risk than he did. Okay. That, oh, yeah. It's just what it is. It's just what it is. It, it, I'm not taking anything away from Buffett. He absolutely crushed it. But if you want to replicate those kinds of returns over 40 years, we're going to have to take a little more risk in today's day and age. But uh, that's also the price of having more market participants, man. When you drop down uh, the barriers to entry and investing, Ex- expect it to come, and also the volatility we deal with today is ridiculous. And I, I am always wondering: yeah. I mean, is it algorithmic trading? Is it zero-day expiration options? What is causing these massive swings that we've just come to accept as normal now? It- it's really unbelievable, if you ask me. What uh, I wonder sometimes: what the equity risk premium actually is at this point? When you think about how much stuff actually moves, like uh, the the you mentioned Nvidia. Let's go back a year where Nvidia was, man. Down what 70% drawdown into the hundreds. Like, uh, yeah, now we all talk about it because it's pushing 500, but that was a scary time too for a company that's an absolute juggernaut.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, the today's you know investment backdrop is way different, of course. Um, and not even just the backdrop, but like just how we are as a society wired. I mean, for like everything that we do. Like we want immediate gratification. We want immediate, you know, success. We want immediate stimulation. It's like social. I mean, everything, right? Everything we do is like our phones, right? TikTok, social media, Twitter, all this. It's like we want immediate satisfaction. And gone are the days where like you could actually have a Buffett that had more of like what you'd call like a permanent capital strategy where investors didn't care. They weren't expecting to get money back. They're expecting to get paid in the form of maybe dividends. Um, at the time, like I mean, Berkshire didn't even pay any dividends, but I mean, it's permanent capital, right? It's within a holding corp and people are just willing to accept that, right? Like, no, yeah. well, we don't need liquidity, really. Like in that, if you don't need liquidity, like it's basically, he was basically running a you know, private equity strategy for the most part mm-hmm. for, you know, 60 years um, that just happened to have a public ticker. But that's basically what he's doing. And people, because he had already had so much success, they said, yeah, we'll let you do it, right? Um, Absolutely. But nowadays, I mean, it's just, you're not, you just don't get that. I mean, it's just, yeah, not many people are willing to think about it long-term, are willing to be patient. Again, we want immediate gratification, yeah. immediate results. And it just, that's not how investing works. That's not how, you know. Compound. You got to be the
0: tortoise, man. You have to be the tortoise. But I will say this, uh, what I've come to realize too, especially over the last four years, and I feel like it's gotten even more apparent, the speed at which everything moves today, though, uh, Stephen, it's crazy. Yeah. The way it's almost like our bull markets and bear markets do, are are the flashes that much quicker. Uh, te- technology advancements are that much faster. You know, you know, you just look at like this huge hockey stick curve of technological advances. You know, Moore's law, uh, anticipating recessions. Like, look how quick we snap in and out of one now. Is is that yeah. what we can expect going forward? Like, how many scares have we had now, even before the pandemic? Remember, we had China trade wars. Yep. We had so many things. And the snapback is nothing like I've ever seen in previous cases. It, it, I feel like we're in this new world, man, where everything is on like 2x speed.
1: At least. Yeah, yeah. Am, like am I wrong man. in that? Am, am I high frequency the... trading? Every all just all the the technology that's being utilized to move money, to make decisions, to you know provide insights. I mean, it's just it's it's expedited. Just anything, in, in both directions, right? It's like yups, you know it's 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 just yeah. Loud. Like I have
0: these models, right? And I I really leverage them a lot when I'm trying to find a stock when to buy, when to exit, and the speed at which something goes on my model. From undervalued to overvalued in a matter of five to six months. Like, when the heck did I missed the whole dip buying opportunity? It lasted yeah. and it, it, it's gone in three months. Like, I look at a name like Datadog, I'm looking at it in the 70s, I blink, it's 120. Yeah. It's like, okay, my model said it was undervalued. Now it's, now I can't buy it. And now my model says it's overvalued. And, um, It just uh, It's a different dynamic I feel we're living in right now, we're working with and operating in. Uh, And it's something I just wanted to throw out there, even though it's a little bit of a tangent, just for newer investors to uh, keep an eye on and be thoughtful of. And again, it actually just plays more into the whole play it long-term thing because if anything, everything's become that much even harder to time because it's not drawn out anymore.
1: Totally. It's not. Um,
0: you, You see the losses of 2022 how quickly they can be made up in 2023. Yeah. I mean, I think
1: we're, I mean, I don't know what the numbers say right now, but I think like the S&P is.
0: Yeah, right there. What is it back to all
1: time highs? Or like, yeah, I mean, it's right I mean, there. Like it's like hair a hair off. Yeah. I mean, we're not far away.
0: We're, we're right there. We're a hair off. Okay. Like, and you think about it from the aspect Who would have of, thought
1: that coming into 2023? Every
0: I mean, pundit was yeah. saying, and I have a, a beautiful chart that shows every dip since like dating back to like 30 years ago and like the most famous economists and and hedge fund managers talking about this is the end this is the end this is the end on oh, yeah. every single one of them um and that's why you have a guy like chainos he's like you know what guys yeah this this business ain't for me anymore i'm I'm done shorting this shit. like this market is not what it used to be like look at look at his theory on why his whole thesis on why he was short coinbase right The thing bleeds out, bleeds out, bleeds out. His short is working beautifully. Bitcoin catches a a bid, okay? And now Coinbase rockets over 100. Your whole short position that was winning this entire time, all your gains evaporated in a matter of two, three months. I can't even blame the guy. I can't even blame him because the dip scooping is just ridiculous and how quick people can turn on a stock is just ridiculous. It just, you have to be so much faster to shuffle your chips around. Uh, it, could, it just makes the trading so much harder. And that's just another reason to not even bother with it.
1: Yep. I think that's, yeah, that's a, a
0: check in the uh, the patience column there. Enough agree with me, Scoo. So here, we're at, here we go. That's why I'm going to bring up this last final question. For those tuning in, we're doing something a little different from here on out. I am ending every podcast on a non-finance question. Just so you can get a little bit of a, you know, insight and feel for who me and uh, Steven are as, as people. So this one, I thought about it. I showed my hand a little too early telling you um, it's going to be a Super Bowl question. And you got a little upset because I uh, I shared it with you beforehand. So this one, you don't even know what it's going to be.
1: Okay. My All question
0: right. is, was Patrick Mahomes reaction warranted after the game?
1: Oh man. No, he was, I mean, he was, you saw the guy, he was crying, he was whining um, you know, the, the great players do not, do not overreact like that in my opinion. So, you know, Mahomes, I think until then, you know, he's kind of always done everything the right way. Right. I mean, he's never thrown players under the bus. I mean, he could have been throwing his own players under the bus over, you know, over this course of the season. And maybe it was just all that culminating right into like, this situation where he just absolutely just lost it did
0: you this know, change your opinion on him as a player
1: it just does, it's not a good look man all i know not a good look i mean quite honestly i'm not a big chiefs fan i'm kind of anti-chiefs anyways so um but i always like mahomes i think he's always done things the right way he's been great you cannot you know discredit how great he's been since he's there was the no team, issue
0: right? with the timing of the throw of the flag right
1: so but yeah i mean the you know he lost a little bit of credit there especially <clears throat> you saw like the post game with josh allen i thought
0: that was, was real distasteful
1: you know i just yeah yeah it kind of left a, certainly a sour taste in my mouth and um but it's, it's not yeah it's not good for the game i just think you no. know it's like
0: so though it's come probably creating a, a storyline
1: right so the nfl probably loves it because they're like oh yeah you know now you know you oh, is the villain you know i don't know who knows what hey, hey. no one knows what the nfl is doing man
0: I don't know. I'm always questioning it, but, you know, and what's crazy to me is this is coming from a guy who whose team gets like every damn call go their way. Can we say that, please? The Chiefs get every call go their way, man.
1: I mean, certainly it seems like they've been on the right side of a lot of calls over the last few. No,
0: no, no, no. I'm not accepting a professional answer here. That's exactly what it is, Steven. Yeah, you I know said it. That's I mean, what it, it seems is. like.
1: They've, they've been on the right side nah, of a nah, nah, lot it seems. of
0: calls. It freaking is. Okay. Like no other team gets the shit that they get. I'm tired of it. I'm I mean to go
1: back to the Super Bowl last year, right? I mean, very, very ticky-tacky foul to ultimately determine the the Super Bowl champion. I mean, that's tough.
0: That's what I'm saying, man. And you know what? I'm gonna throw one more question on there to end this one because right, this right, one is kind of finance related. Kind of. Shohei's deal. To only accept, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, 10 years, yeah, 700 I, mil, and I to know, only yeah. collect 2 million a year, what do you th- actually think about that contract, man? Is uh, he crazy for this? What What do you think?
1: So, I think it's a great deal for everybody, right? I Not mean, me
0: as a Red Sox fan.
1: Well, yeah, sorry. All <laughs> the parties involved being A, Shohei and his team and the Dodgers. Dodgers are going to clobber everybody for the next decade, basically. Don't you know? say
0: that. Don't say that. But they're becoming the <laughs> I mean, they're JT positioned now.
1: to, I should say. They're positioned to. That's what that deal does. It affords them a lot more flexibility than they would have ever had.
0: They're going to get they, Yamamoto they, now, too, aren't they? Yeah, they
1: probably are. No major luxury. I mean, think about it. That's the huge draw. Huge draw. You get Shohei locked up for 10 years, huge draw. He made just structure the same deal. You know? This is so bullshit. The, Something similar. Bull. Well, other teams could have done it. I mean, how come Dodgers aren't the only ones that could have possibly thought of this, right? So, I mean, you got to give them credit or Shohei and his team credit for proposing it. Obviously, he wanted to be in L.A., it sounds like. It looks Otherwise, like wanted he wanted to catch
0: was... up on rings. I mean, look, he was mistreated in Anaheim. Let's call it what it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Not Terrible. for the players, but from the organization, like. How that team with Trout oh, it's didn't get anywhere terrible. is terrible. Like the fact that Trout, what, doesn't have one playoff win to his name? Horrific is... ownership,
1: horrific management, awful. Okay. But I mean, back to the Otani uh, deal. I mean, so right, $2 million a year for 10 years, 680 deferred over 10 years, right? So he's basically getting 680, 68 million a year for 10 years after he retires. Um, I actually haven't done the numbers, but it was funny. Like I was talking... Uh, talking to a buddy of mine last night at the Avalanche game, and we were talking about like when when you're on SportsCenter and they're talking about NPV, net present value of a contract. <laughs> like, Whoa, what the hell is happening here? Uh, <laughs> but like the NPV of that deal is actually like not. I mean, what is? I mean, the risk-free rate's five percent. You discount, you know, sixty-eight million a year twenty years from now back to today. That's like nothing. Wait,
0: I thought I read it was interest-bearing. Is it's not interest? It's not accruing interest.
1: It may be. I thought I saw sixty-eight million paid um per year over the 10 years after the deal's done that's
0: crazy so do you think this is a deal uh, a deal structure that we could potentially see going forward from now on well i mean like bobby Bonilla is famous for oh, the first one right oh, he's I still know. getting Mets, paid man yeah. when's <laughs> the last time he played in the league yeah yeah he um, that mean, deal. he's getting a,
1: a million a year but still like i mean he's he kind of was the orchestrator of this and then the NHL's done some of these deals um with like guys that just crazy long deals, but nothing like Bobby Bonilla. I mean, I think more people do it. I think the other key aspect is it is from a taxation standpoint for Otani, right? Cause like he, yeah. when he leaves LA, presumably at the end of that 10 year contract,
0: he gets taxed you know, in the area he resides in. Is this, is this, I'm not really. Yeah. So when he's making that 68 million a
1: year, state income tax will be based on wherever he resides, not,
0: You know, California,
1: which is, you know, what, 15% at the highest tax Oh, my
0: God. If that's truly the case, that is a genius deal on his end. Um, I just wonder, though, man. 12.3%,
1: I think, is the highest bracketed. I mean, think about that. All
0: right. Let Uh, let me ask you this, then, a a little differently. 10 years, for this contract to be worth it for the L.A., how many rings they got to get before you call it a bust? Yeah, I
1: mean, I'm not going to call it a bust because I think I already saw like they are projecting conservatively. I forgot what the number was 25 to 35 million conservatively, they're going to be making per year off this deal just based on, you know, memorabilia, all all, everything that goes with Shohei Otani, right? It's like they're profiting 25 to 30 million a year. I believe they said conservatively. Maybe it's 25 million, maybe the lower end. But I mean, it's not like, they're going to make plenty of money off his image and likeness, right? And like, you know that that market. So they'll be fine. I mean, if they and, and then if they happen to win two World Series, and, you know, along the I way, I think
0: two is a flop. If they only win two of the next ten, they flopped. Yeah,
1: I mean, it all depends on who you know.
0: In legacy terms, not financial terms. Yeah, but the thing is, terms. at the end of the day, if
1: like the structure of it's not actually that you know damaging economically, then it's not that big of a problem, right?
0: No, I mean that's absolutely. the thing it's like Absolutely. i'm just saying from the aspect of winning games winning trophies you know um you better be raking in some at least three to four if you ask me out of the next ten. yeah i mean they could easily do it. i mean
1: if they've still got a good young core and they can have they have enough money now because of the way that was structured to go sign whoever they want
0: i think what the yanks got soto and we trade them verdugo man baseball is Baseball is getting kind of weird now, man. It's all yeah, about man. the Cardinals.
1: Yeah, my Bucks. Cardinals are uh, in, in pretty rough shape here. That we did we did bring back our old favorite, Lance Lynn, but um, Sonny Gray we signed, which is a decent offseason. off-season Let's see what happens, man.
0: You know, baseball has got their own thing going on where they have an aging viewer that they need to address. They need to start doing something um, – I'm not sure if it's like equivalent to an in-game season tournament. I'm not sure how I even feel about that with the NBA, yeah. if that really worked out or not. I- I'm still confused about whether I like it or not. But I wonder about baseball with the average viewer almost pushing 60 years old. What they're gonna do to rejuvenate that uh, as you know the years pass five, ten down the road? Um, how they engage that younger viewer uh, to you know give that that sport. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think like the
1: NBA has done a really good job, obviously. Um, I think NBA is at peak popularity, right? I mean, it's got to be.
0: It probably Um, is. And I think a lot of that's due to, uh, you know, guys moving around and you have a lot of teams competing now. And it's fun. I'm enjoying the games are
1: fun. I mean, they're entertaining. It's more about it's more of an entertainment spectacle than it is really about the game. So is
0: 162 just too much for baseball? Is that is that one of the issues?
1: I mean, it's it's a drag, right? I mean, you're starting um, early April, right? I mean, and you're ending October.
0: I know it's a long season, man. Every game means that much less. Technically, it's literally a
1: six month just absolute grind. It and is. you have games, you know, in a thirty day month, you've got twenty seven games. You right? like the
0: p- you like the pitch count uh, timer? I actually like it.
1: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, game times came down, which I think is helpful. So, like, those are incrementally good steps. But, yeah, I mean, from a true entertainment standpoint, you know, fan engagement standpoint, there's obviously, you know, a lot to, that that needs to be done probably longer term.
0: But football is your favorite sport, no? Um, it's are all you? A, rel- are you yeah, I don't know,
1: man. I mean, I grew up playing baseball. Um, so, I mean, I'm a baseball kind of fanatic at heart, but – I like to go to a baseball game. You know, watching a game does nothing for me. Basically, I feel you. There. Um, like going to a game, sitting outside, drinking cold beer, eating nachos. I mean, that's like still like just pure nostalgia, right? Like that's as yeah, good man. as it gets. Like eating peanuts, <laughs> peanut shells all over the floor, like sneaking in your own stuff. I mean, that's what it's about.
0: Best game you've been to is, uh Fenway. You've been to Fenway. Oh yeah. Uh and it's my favorite too. I'm bi- I'm biased. But yeah, I, yeah. Went, you're, I went, I went a uh,
1: Sox fan. So, sorry, yeah, man, Sox game fan.
0: one, first time ever going, game one, 2007 World Series. Josh Beckett on the mound versus the Colorado Rockies. Yep. Yep. Damn, do I miss that team.
1: Yeah, you Fine. guys, you guys beat up on my Cardinals in 0-4, swept yes, us. Yes, we did. Which yes, was, you did. know, after you came back 0-3 from the Yankees, I was like, oh my god, this is going to just be an absolute just bloodbath because you just knew at that point. It was oh, you
0: start. didn't say a chance. Yeah, you did oh. not stand. No one was beating that team on that. On that run. I was
1: like, yep, this is not going to be fun. This is going to. Oh be man! But
0: that was back in the Tony Larusa days, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So I'd say, yeah, Fenway's great. Um, I love Busch Stadium. Um, the new Bush stadium is great. Wrigley's great. Go to cards, Cubs game. Just the rivalry is fantastic. Um, those are, I mean, those are the, the, the best. Stadiums. I like
0: Houston. Houston's was nice. Yep, I've been down to Houston. Houston was definitely probably maybe number two on my list. Um, I'm not a fan of the new Yankee stadium. Uh, I just don't feel it has that same heritage. The old one did, uh, city yep. field is better than Shea stadium. The new city field. I like more than Shea. Yeah, um, so. but, Alright Scoot. that gives people a little bit of insight into uh, what kind of fans we are, where we stand on some things outside of finance, man. But this was a great episode. We're going to try to make them, for those listening, going forward, uh, continue to follow some kind of theme. So you at least know what to expect um, uh, on these future episodes. If we have an episode where we say "Oh, we're going to be bouncing around a lot, maybe talk about more current events um we'll definitely let you know ahead of time Uh, when i post the podcasts i'll let you guys know in the description what you can expect in each episode but until then thank you all for tuning in and we'll catch you all in the next episode